Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please fix your eyes firmly upon that word that I read to you and you're hearing there. If you turn with me in 2 Kings chapter 8 this morning and we consider there was a, a woman, shouldn't say she's a widow here, but she had a son. I'm thinking here of this woman who had a son who was restored to life. There was indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ day, there was a, a widow whose son was restored to life, the son of Nain. But here, this woman is not a widow. She has a husband, and he has been restored to life. And we want to think on these first few verses and then the rest of the chapter. We read, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall come upon the land seven years. You know, there are various things to consider first of all, and I need to say by way of introduction before we come and we consider these verses in the rest of the chapter. As we come to this chapter this morning, we thought in the last two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, how judgment came to Samaria how there was a famine even in the land, and how the king, Jehoram, was destroyed. Now, it should be fairly easy to see, and I take the view here, that these things happening here actually take place shortly before that destruction of the city. Well, I shouldn't say the city was destroyed, but the Syrians came around, there was a famine, and many of the people resorted to this terrible act of cannibalism. We saw those two women uh, arguing over whose son they were going to eat next. In the previous chapter, chapter 7, Jehoram, the king of Israel, is trampled at the city gate. He was an ungodly king. Now, he's again mentioned here in this chapter, but he is mentioned as Joram. Now, this might be a little confusing to you, but if you first turn to Back to 2 Kings chapter 3, I want you to notice, and the reason why these names are slightly different is because there was another king, the king of Judah in the south, was also called Joram at the same time. And to further complicate things, these men were actually related because they were uh, indeed brothers-in-law at the same time. So we'll explain that as we go along. But... Let me try to keep it as simple as possible for you this morning. 2 Kings chapter 3. Now notice now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. So the son of Ahab here is called Jehoram. But in this chapter, you will notice He's called Joram. Now, Joram is a shortened version of Jehoram. And so I trust that will take away any kind of confusion that we may have in our minds. We see in verse 26 here of chapter, uh, sorry, chapter, chapter 8, verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab. So you see there he's called Joram in this chapter. So those people who would criticize the Bible, let's just understand that this is just a shortened version, just as uh, Jesus and Joshua, the same name, but can be shortened versions, one of another, or Joshua and Jesus, same name, Yeshua, the Lord saves. Now, last time we considered in chapter 7, the sham repentance of this king. Remember as he was there upon the city wall and uh, there were the two women that I referred to earlier that were arguing over which child to eat and he tore his garment. He was appalled at the situation and he revealed underneath that he had sackcloth and that repentance should have been like the king of Nineveh who repented in sackcloth and ashes before the city. Now, Samaria 
was the capital of Israel in these days, the ten tribes in the north. And the apostasy was rife. There was Baal worship. There were all kinds of things done that really were an abomination to the Lord. The nation were brought out of the land of Egypt and worship was to be only to the one and true and living God. God said in that first commandment, I shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. And he was not to be worshipped in any other way, not to be misrepresented by a bull. There was bull worship here. This golden calf, bull worship. And this was being tolerated. And there was all kinds of other syncretism going on in the land. And there was a sham repentance. The Lord has brought famine upon the land, seeking to bring the people to repentance. Now there were in Israel, as we know, 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. These are often called the remnant, those that are truly circumcised in the heart. He who is a one that is a, an Israelite, indeed spiritually, as Paul says, one that has been born again. One, as it were, that has been cut to the heart over his sin and who desires holiness and who desires to walk in the way of the Lord. But there was this sham repentance. Elisha and his predecessor Elijah had called the nation to repentance. And uh, if people did it, sadly, it was only done outwardly. This king was even doing it so outwardly that even here now, he was not even wanting to do it outwardly, but he was even wanting to cover up his sackcloth and ashes. It was something that he perhaps even thought, well, if he just did it, well, the Lord would receive him. And now he even begins to despise, did he not, Elisha? And he was angry at Elisha and even threatened Elisha's life at the end of that chapter. And we saw how God did restore back everything to that city of Samaria. Remember how destitute the place was. You couldn't buy flour. People were eating donkeys' heads. People were eating pigeons' dung. It was that desperate. People were eating even their own children. And that even happened in the year AD 70 shortly after the Lord Jesus Christ was taken up into glory. And he warned of that. So things are very destitute. And the prophet Elisha, remember, he said, by this time tomorrow, even the finest of flour will be sold at rock-bottom prices. And they were. Because what did God do? God caused a great noise to come over the Syrian camp. And they fled and they left their tents empty. And the lepers came in, didn't they? And they discovered all that the Syrian army that had actually come out against Israel. And Israel came in, as it were, the people from Samaria came into that camp of the Syrians and had at their great disposal all that food. So God did fulfill that promise. And furthermore, the king was told that he would see it, but he would not partake of that food. And that was true. As people were running out the gate, he was trampled under foot and was destroyed. So the prophecy was fulfilled, wasn't it? In a mighty way. And my friends, God can do things so quickly. We're told in Zechariah that at evening time it shall be light. God can turn the darkest hour so quickly into light. And so therefore we never despair. Never, never despair. And so we saw even in that chapter, chapter 6 and chapter 7, didn't we see we saw judgment to a wicked king and also judgment to Ben-Hadad. His troops were sent back full of shame, sent away running. But then we also saw grace, undeserved grace,
to the city of Samaria. Undeserved kindness, the kindness of God to an undeserving people. And that's us. Really, we're by no, no different, are we, by nature to these people. God has had mercy on us, shown his kindness to us, where rather we deserve his wrath. This king, well, he mocked the idea of God's deliverance. And he shouldn't have. And so the judgment of God came upon him. He was trampled underfoot. Now, as I said, what we see here in chapter 8 is actually taking place, and I believe that this is the case, this is the common view of many faithful commentators, and we will see for various reasons. And because, of course, this king, who is also, as I've shown you, who is also called Jehoram, this, we believe, in chapter 8, and this happens quite frequently in the scriptures, it's not always in chronology, chronological order. What is taking place here, it is believed, and I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why. This has taken place before what has taken place in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Remember how Elisha raised that woman and her husband's sons to life, that boy. Remember, they never had a son, and then the son died, and then he was raised to life. You remember that in chapter 4. Well, now, what I need to seek to try to establish why this is the case, if you look, as we mentioned here, one of the reasons why we believe that this took place before the, the Syrians came and surrounded the city and the king was destroyed, if you notice, there's a warning here of a famine. Notice Verse 1, then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, go thou and thy household and sojourn there, where thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine. Now that's what happened in the previous chapters. Think of the famine throughout the land of Israel. And where was she dwelling? Well, she was from Shunem. Now, Shunem was a good 20-odd miles away from the city of Samaria. And even the famine would affect not just her, but the whole of the land of Israel. So this is another reason why she was warned to go and to flee into another country even, because a famine was coming, and it did come in chapter 6 and chapter 7. We know that took place, as well as the Syrian army coming. So this woman was from Shunem. Another reason to believe that this took place is because we see Gehazi here. And Gehazi, we know, remember after the Lord's dealings with Naaman, the leper from the Syrian army, Naaman, who was the general, and the Lord restored even that man's leprosy so that his skin was that like of a baby's, fresh, and here we see Gehazi here speaking before the king of indeed Israel, who is called Jehoram. We read from chapter 2, from chapter 3, I beg your pardon, he's called Jehoram. And the third reason we believe here that this takes place after is we read here of Jehoram or Joram, the king of Israel. He's mentioned in this chapter. Now the first thing I want to look at this morning as we consider this woman. All this is taking place in the time of national judgment. And what we glean from this is that even in the time of national judgment, the Lord has his loving eye upon his people. Isn't that a precious thought? That every one of his people he loves so dearly. And... We notice here, verse 1, Then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and thou go and thine household, and sojourn there, sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. And uh, so she does go. Now the encounter, we believe, that 
Gehazi has with the king is just before his death. That's something we need to get in because you might say, well, the king's still here. I thought you said he's going to be destroyed. He is going to be destroyed, but in chapter 7 at the city gate. Now, one of the things we need to say is that this woman, first of all, she received the word of God. But she did more than that. She acted upon the word of God. And dear friends, this is a very important lesson for us as believers. You know, as Christians, we don't just come here to receive the word of God, but we come to act upon it. And she obeyed it. Down to the letter, she left everything. Not just her, but her husband and her son. Who knows what might have become of her? I mean, it was bad. We know the people of, indeed, Samaria, the city of Samaria, got that fine flower. But what of the other places around? Many people might have died. And had she have stayed, she might have died. She might have perished. Who knows what would have happened if she didn't act upon the word of God. The psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 60 says, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Now my friend, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and don't make the excuse, well I've only been a Christian a short while. You must obey. Because failure to obey always has its consequences. Now we know the Lord's people will never fall. But you talk to any Christian that's been a Christian for a length of period of time, and they will say their biggest regret is not obeying God when they know they should have. For various reasons. Not only will the Lord chasten you if you don't obey him, but you won't grow as a Christian. You won't put your faith to the test. You see, if you don't obey, if you don't walk in the word, how are you ever going to put your faith to the test? How are you ever going to be proving God to be true? If you honor him, don't say, well, I've only been a Christian a short while. Don't use that as an excuse to not obey him. The scriptures say, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. Now she acted upon what she received. And that period is past. And I want to bring up the second thing here now. What we have here, secondly, is apparent loss because of obedience. Now I use that word very carefully and I want you to notice with me. Apparent loss because of obedience. And it might even seem to you that that may be the case sometimes in your life. Apparent loss, I've obeyed God, now look what's happened to me. Now look, she's come back, seven years have passed, and it came to pass at the seven years end, verse 3, that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. Now there was a law in Israel, we should know it. I'd be glad to give you the time to show it to you at a convenient time afterward, but it's very clear that you couldn't lose your land. It seemed nigh impossible. We know from the book of Ruth that land had to be passed down. Now if you sold it, you got it back after seven years. Even if you took a loan out on the property, it still had to be kept in the family. But Israel has sunk to such levels of depravity that the laws of God were not being kept. Things had gone terribly wrong. She's done everything right. She's obeyed the prophet. This woman from Shunem, when she returns home, somebody has taken her land and her husband's land, and started to grow produce on it. Look at verse 7. Because the king here orders that when this land is to be restored, 
Not only is the land to be restored, but everything that was grown in it for the last seven years had to be restored to, to her. Verse 5, and it came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day. So everything was restored back to her, all the produce. You see that? So apparent loss for obeying God. But friends, when we obey God, there's never a loss. Never, never really. Even if you, you were to lose your life, there's no loss. Because there's heaven. What is this world? It's nothing really. Seven years have passed, and it seems that obedience was actually to her disadvantage. But as we noted there in verse 6, everything was to be restored. Her obedience seems to have been at a disadvantage. And as I said, this also highlights the injustice in Israel at the time. There was a law. The land could not be taken away. And you know, and yet, it's amazing how the Lord works even in this king's heart. You know, the scriptures say, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whithsoever way he will. And he did, this king. You know, sometimes we, we just think we're wiser than God. We have to trust a faithful God, my friends. Sometimes it may appear like when Asaph looked at the wicked. You know that Psalm 73. And he saw how the wicked were getting away with things. Psalm 73 verse 13 Asaph says, Verily I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He said, I, I've done good and I've kept from evil, but it's all been in vain, God. But then he goes, it says, into the house of the Lord and he sees the end of the wicked. How God will bring them to naught. You see, we never really lose out if we obey God. We're always the better for it. And even, let me say, even if we lose financially, our souls are richer. You know, the scriptures say, Proverbs 19, 22, a poor man is better than a liar. A poor man is better than a liar. Proverbs 19, 1, Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. You see, you can't sleep with a bad conscience. And you can't go to heaven even though you've lied. Liars and fools have their part in the lake of fire. But God's people trust in his word. They trust in his ways. And even when there's injustice, you have to trust that God is just. He's no man's debtor. God will provide all of your needs, says the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. And all of my needs, he says, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So this is a tremendous thing. And we see this woman and she pleads her cause before the king. And he hears and one wouldn't expect this. I mean, this king is really, he's, he's not a man of God. And it's amazing how he, how he orders. 
that everything be restored for her and all the produce, no loss at all. Thirdly, we notice in the providence of God, God working by a seeming coincidence. Now we know what coincidence is. We know what the word incidence means. Incidence means something that takes place. We say, we might even say something like this, it was incidental. Coincidence means two or more things happening at the same time. Things coinciding, coincidences. Here, Gehazi, if you notice verse 5, he's telling the king, and the king is all excited. Notice, and it came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house, for the land. Now we might say this is coincidence, but this is all determined by God. It's tremendous, isn't it? It didn't just happen. She wasn't just at the right place at the right time. God brought her there at the seventh year, at this specific time, and it came to pass by God's ordering. We have that verse, don't we, in Ephesians 1.11. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. This is God's will. And the Lord restores, my friend. And she has great abundance now. She's no loser for, for obeying God. And you and I will be no loser for obeying God. In whatever way we are called to give up anything, we will never be the less for it. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus to Peter. You know where the Lord Jesus has just got off dealing with that rich young ruler who wouldn't give up his wealth, wouldn't give up anything. The Lord said, take all your goods, give it to the poor. He was putting his hand on that man's problem. That man's problem, that young man, that rich young man, his God was his wealth. That was his problem. And the Lord didn't chase after him and say, come back. I'll change the rules a little bit. He didn't do that. But he let him go. And then he turned to his disciples. He said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And then he turned to Peter. And, then, and Peter said, well, Lord, we've left houses. We've left everything. Mark 10, 29, we read, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time, in this life, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. And then he said, but many that are first shall be last. And the last first. If you put yourself first, my friend, it may either prove you're unsaved or it will be to the stagnation of your own soul. You will be, as it were, a spiritual dwarf, you'll not grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Those who honor him, he will honor. We read, sometimes we sing in that Psalm 92, the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. Even in old age, they shall bear fruit. They shall be full of sap. It's true for God's people. She was an old woman. We know that. And her, her husband, we, we know from the previous account, they were old people. But look at them. They, they left everything. They came back. And they were so blessed. Some people don't want to give up much for the Lord. 
something else thirdly. We think of the king here. The, the king, he, he was greatly impressed. Look at him. He's listening to Gehazi. And I mean, Gehazi, we know, is a lost man. Gehazi, he took money for a very gracious act done. And this was an abomination. And the Lord struck him with leprosy. And now, Gehazi, is, it's interesting here. I don't know if you noticed, but Gehazi is giving Elisha the credit for this. Did you notice? Look at verse 4. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king, how he had restored a dead body to life. But it actually was God. Yes, Elisha was the minister and was the prophet, but where's the glory to God? And where is the admonition to the king? Where is the exhorting to the king to seek the Lord? It's not there. But here this king, he was even impressed. Look, he's listening to Elisha. It came to pass as he was telling the king and had restored the dead body to life. And he's so taken up with this. And uh, Gehazi says, Oh, my lord, my king, this is the woman, and so on. Now this king, it, it, what we see here is easily impressed, but he's not changed. And there are people like this, you know. I've been to other countries, and you can talk about the Lord to them, and they seem very excited. And sometimes that's just because you're foreign. And, and they like to hear so, and you're foreign, and oh, and they're just maybe even trying to be polite. But friends, when you start to address them about sin and the need to repent and to serve the living God, watch them change. You know, if you really believe that other nations are more acceptable to the word of God, why aren't they saved? It's a good question to ask. See, the problem is universal around the world. It's what we call the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't matter where you go. The early missionaries to Africa and India and these parts of the world often thought, well, it would be easy. It's not. Wherever you go, it's the same problem of the human heart. People can be excited. Oh, you're foreign. This is new. We've never heard of this. And we'll just be polite. Impressed people can be, but not changed. It's, it's the work of God alone that changes the heart. According to the word of God, you're not more receptive to the truth than others. I don't care where you're from. It's a universal problem. The scriptures declare this. Romans 3.11, there is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Psalm 10 verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. I've often have this on the streets here. And I was a little bit fooled to begin with. I often say this, and it's true. We get a lot of foreign people listening in the open air. And uh, they may be from Asia or even the continent, and they listen. And that's often because they don't hear open air preaching in their land. But then actually when you, you bring the message to them personally, they back off. They back off. And that's because the problem, you see, is a universal one. That's what I'm saying. Those countries, very often it's a false gospel that's preached. It's health, wealth, prosperity. Or 
It's just disrespectful not to listen to the preacher. We're all going to listen to him. But my friend, when a soul is confronted with the word of God, face to face, then you truly see what state that man's heart is in. Fifthly, I want you to notice the wicked are often used as providential instruments of judgment. You see this in verse 7 to the verse 15. We note here how the wicked are often used as providential instruments of judgment. We note here, and Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go. Meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels' burden, and came and stood before him and said, Thy son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go and say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. Now several things to notice here. God is at work. And he is going to judge these kings. And what he has prophesied concerning Ahab's house is now coming to pass. And he uses, God uses wicked men to accomplish his good purposes of judgment. Now this blows the mind of many people. And this is where we see that the God of the heaven and earth is in control of this wicked world, my friends. I want you to see various things here. Notice here that Elisha is sent to Damascus in Syria. Why? Because remember, Elijah, the one who was before him, who was now taken up into heaven, was earlier instructed to anoint certain kings. Because God was saying, these men are going to be the kings. I have already determined it. Because God knows the beginning and he knows the end. He knows the end from the beginning. And he has ordered all things. And he is working everything to the great final day of judgment. If you notice in 1 Kings 19 verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, that is Elijah, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel, 1 Kings 19, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimishi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. We see that in the next chapter, by the way. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Loma, shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So Elisha's going to be the next prophet, but by the way, you've got to anoint these other kings. And Elijah doesn't get round to anointing Jehu and so on. Now you notice verse 7. So Elisha here comes now, 2 Kings 8, came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad the king of Syria was sick, and it was told him, that is the king, saying, the man of God, that is Elisha, is come hither. Now he, he gives here Elisha a great gift of wealth, great presence, notice. And he says, take in thine hand, he says to his servant, the king, that is Ben-Hadad, said unto Haziel, his servant, take a present in thine hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I rec recover of this disease? So he gives him a present. He wants to know on the one hand, am I going to survive this? 
He's kind of a practical atheist once again. He wants to know if he's going to die. But this man is quite frankly a pagan denier of God. He wants to know by the prophet if he's going to live. But he denies the very God that Elisha represents. It's bizarre. This is the madness of men's hearts. And can you believe it? It gives him great wealth in thinking that these gifts will somehow appease God and can buy God's favor. Did he just remember what God did concerning Naaman? We don't want this money. We don't want anything. Well, at any rate, Elisha deals with Haziel, the servant of the king who comes to him. Verse 10, and says to him, go say unto him, that is to the king, thou mayest or can certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not going to be this disease that you're going to die by. You can recover from this. It's not a disease unto death, but you're going to die. And notice what happens in the verse 11. Haziel comes to him and he stares at this man. For we don't know how long, but it must have been quite a time until Hazael is embarrassed. He's ashamed. Because you see, Elisha knows the wickedness of this man's heart. And what he's going to do. Verse 11. And he, that is Elisha, settled his countenance steadfastly until Hazael, the servant of the king, was ashamed or embarrassed. And notice, Elisha doesn't smile, but he weeps. He weeps. Why? And Hazael even asks him. Because I know the evil, verse 12, that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds will thou set on fire, and their young men will thou slay with a sword, and will dash their children and rip up their woman with child. This would be a terrible thing. And evil is going to be perpetrated here by wicked men. But did God not warn the nation? That if they departed from the living God, they would be left to the hands of wicked men. And that has always been the case. And that, my friends, is always the case. And Elisha saw it here. And he saw the heart of this man, Haziel, who wanted to be king. Now notice what Haziel says. He protests, he retorts, and he says in verse 13, But what? Is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? What am I, an animal? I could never do such a thing. Now it's interesting here. Haziel doesn't deny that he has plans to be the king. Do you see that? He says... I know that I shall be king. I know the evil that you will do. That you will dash these people. What does he say? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. And he doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny that he has desire for this. He simply protests his innocence. I could never do this. My friend, men are capable of all kinds of sin that they never would imagine. The seeds of every sin are in every man's heart. Now this prophecy may have even made him warm to the idea of doing this. We don't know. Could be. Elisha is saying is, this is what you will do. Now, this 
man here, Hazael, could have even said, well, he could have even done this to, and even legitimizing his actions because the prophet said he will do it. But friends, this is what we call the decreed will of God. There is a difference between the decreed will of God and the perceptive will of God. God has decreed, you will do this. But that's very different, isn't it? To the perceptive will of God. The preceptive will of God has to do with what is right. He knew it was wrong. It's like Judas saying, oh, well, you know, the prophecies said that I will deny the Lord Jesus and I will put him to death. But the scriptures say that Judas by transgression fell. Nobody is an innocent bystander in the providence of God. Hear me. Though God has providentially arranged and decreed all things, nobody is innocent. You do it because you choose to. Man knows what his heart says is wrong. This man was ashamed. And I've seen people under the ministry of God's word weep and leave and never come again. They know what is wrong and they know what is right. God cannot be charged with any evil. Micah 6.8 He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. You see, every man has the law of God written upon the very fabric of his being. He knows it's wrong to lie. He knows it's wrong to steal. He knows there is a God. There's no such thing as a real atheist, my friend. Because the Bible says God has shown himself to them by the things that he has made. While the scriptures prophesied that Judas would betray the Lord, it was still wrong. Still wrong. We're all moral agents. Acts 1.25, Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And God has determined a place for them who do their own will. And it's called hell. Sixthly, I want you to notice the terrible act is done. Verse 14, so he departed from Elisha and came to his master. Who said to him, what said Elisha to thee? And he answered, he told me that thou wilt surely recover. Now notice this, he only told him the half. He didn't say, you're going to die. What does he say? He told me that thou should surely recover. So what does he do? He walks out the door. And he comes back the next day with a wet cloth. And he puts it over this man's face. So that he smothers him to death. And he dies. And it came to pass, verse 15, on the morrow, that's the next day, that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And we read, and Haziel reigned in his stead. You see? Fulfillment of the prophecy. Something else. Sixthly, prophecy in closing in on the destruction of Ahab's house. And we notice this from verse 16 to the verse 29. Ahab, God had said that he would destroy his house. This was prophesied back in the days of Ahab. Remember when he sinned because of that Baal worship, he and sadly his wife Jezebel brought upon the nation. And destruction would soon ensue. 
And what we have here, verse 16a, notice, and in the fifth year of Joram, and I've already explained here that this is Jehoram from 2 Kings 3, the son of Ahab. And the reason it's used here is because, as I said, there's another king in the south, in Judah, who's also called Jehoram at the same time. And this is used so that there isn't any confusion in the story here. Because we know from 2 Kings 3.1, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now Jehoram married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Now you notice what takes place here. If you look down at verse 23, as I said, Jehoram, Joram, it's called Jehoram, Joram here, and he did evil. And they're written in the book of the Chronicles. If you just turn there just very briefly to the book of Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 4. Now when Jehoram, 2 Chronicles 21, verse 4, now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with a sword, and divers also of the princes of Israel. And uh, he died a terrible death, as was prophesied by Elijah. You come down to the verse 14, Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. Thou shalt have great sickness by disease of all thy bowels until thy bowels shall fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. And then you come down to the verse 18. After this, all the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass that in the process of time, after the end of two years, that his bowel fell out by reason of his sickness. So he died of sore diseases, and his people made no burning for him, like the burning of his fathers. He was such a disgrace, you see, this man, that nobody even mourned after him. You notice in verse 20, 30 and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. This is the other Jehoram, one in the south, and departed without being desired, howbeit they buried him, in the city of David, but not in the sepulchres of the kings. They wouldn't even bury him with his fathers. So you have these two Jehoram's wicked men at the same time who were kings here. One in the north, one in the south. And they are now related because the king in the south, Jehoram, marries um, the other Jehoram's sister, Ahab's daughter. And what you notice in the next chapter is horrific. But God is going to bring an end to this ungodly line because Jesus Christ must come into the world. He must preserve a people. Now, if you just come down here, what is going to happen here, you notice in verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of King Ahab of Israel, did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, begin to reign. Now, of course, this king was slain at the city gate, remember? Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah. Now, you notice the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. Now, in your marginal reference of your TBS Bible, it'll there say, granddaughter. Okay, so you'll see that there. And the, the reason why he had daughter is because this is a common way in the Hebrew of relating and just showing that really this is where the evil began, the house of Omri. Verse 27, And he, Ahaziah, walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now what we have finally here now as we conclude in verse 28, we have Ahab's son, Joram, or Jehoram in Israel, and his daughter's son, Ahaziah, reigning in Judah at the same time. And this is the final piece of the jigsaw that's all 
being put together here. And we notice in verse 28, and he, that as Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to, the, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, in Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him in Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now, what you have in chapter 9, if you just look over there, what we see is how God uses Jehu, who was a terribly wicked man, as the instrument of death to judge these two men and to bring an end to the house of Ahab. And here, Haziel is a little piece in the jigsaw because he is the instrument to bring these two men together to this needful judgment. Now, if all this is too complex for you to, to take in, just think of it. My friends, God is ordering every single event of this world. If this is so hard for us to grasp, look at all the details here. Nothing is out of place in this world. Nothing is left to chance. There's no such thing as chance. And God will bring a swift end to this world. I want you to just think as we close. When we see our Lord Jesus Christ being dragged, as it were, taken out there to that place called Golgotha, made to carry his own cross, and that he was put to death by the hands of the wicked men, was that by mistake? Was that by chance? When you and I, we look to the cross, God who promised to clean the house of Ahab because that nation was perpetuating in Baal worship, reducing God to an idol. God did that without impugning his holiness. And God, without impugning his holiness, without getting his hands dirty, dealt with our sin. How did he deal with our sin? By using wicked men to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death on the cross. That's how he did it. In Acts 4, the apostles have just got done preaching and they've been arrested and they put in prison and they begin to pray. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders said unto them. And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for a tr of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered to do what? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. That's amazing. They said, Lord, we know you determined for this to be done. It was your counsel. It was your plan. It was your purpose. That, Lord, you would even use wicked men to do this for the salvation of thy people. Think of Joseph. He said to his brethren, You did it for evil. But God meant it for good. Let me just close with this. You go back to this woman. She was faithful, wasn't she? 
And there's never any loss when we honor God. Because God never can lie. He always will provide. And he has provided the greatest thing. That is his son. To die for our sins. Will he hold back anything for us? Anything. He never will. My friends, this passage and every passage of the word of God is telling us is that God is over all things. The big things, the small things, everything. Every detail of your life. The thing is we need to trust him and obey and hope in God forever. For in him is salvation and eternal life. Friends, there aren't coincidences. God has providentially arranged everything. We read, in whom we have also obtained an in inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And thank God, if you're a Christian today, your hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen.